ladies and gentlemen, we are live. The Sean Steele Law Firm podcast. We are sans Sean Steele at the moment. He may be joining us remotely, live from somewhere in the middle of the heartland of the country. He is on a pilgrimage uh, tracking where his ancestors fought in the Civil War from Tennessee down into Kentucky, uh, because that's where you'd want to be in the middle of August, is in some battlefield in Kentucky. But uh, nevertheless, that's where Sean is. I'm here at the law firm, and with me uh, is the, uh, the ever-famous, uh, the, the well-known, the, the, the insufferable, uh, Dr. Dan Murphy. Hi, everyone. Doctor, thank you for being with us. I know that, uh, that the people who have tuned in today are very excited to hear from you uh, and, uh, and that your reputation precedes you. Um, we had several people prior to today uh, write in asking specifically when you would be speaking. So here you are, live and in the flesh, coming to us from what I was calling off the record uh, a, a professor's office, it looks like. Um, and, uh, and you are a professor, right? You teach at Life West. Yes, I do. What do you teach there? I teach a class to seniors on the management of spinal disorders dovetailed around neurology and pathology. Seems like they would be not fitting together, but they do. And so my actual job at the college is to take everything they've learned in every class and fit, show them how it is integrated. So, you know, toxicology, biomechanics, neurology, orthopedics, um, just about everything you can think of, I tend to integrate it into a interactive drawing class. It's the most unique thing in the history of chiropractic. Uh, it sounds pretty ego, but it's the truth that I figure out how to engage their cerebellum that we draw pictures and some of the homework that I get should be in frames and in the Smithsonian Museum. They're so fabulous. But when you do an interactive drawing class, the result is you, in, you in, engage the cerebellum, which is the key to everything. There's more neurons in the cerebellum than the rest of the body combined, which is an interesting talk when we, we're talking PI today and that I do this for my court cases. I showed them two of the three drawings that I do in a typical court case Monday this week. I started the third, I only do three. I started the third drawing, but we still have a few more hours to complete it. But every line there's logic, every line there's supportive studies and just try to putting it all together so that lay people can have a better understanding why a chiropractor would treat PI, what are our clinical goals? What are our, what are we looking for in terms of um, outcomes? And then of course we measure, we, we talk about using measurement outcomes and, and what it can do for a case. Um, the, 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 the PI people that I deal with mostly, I, like, I, I deal with this one law firm and their, their guy, a guy named Richard, he says that a case that is worth literally a hundred thousand dollars may be dialed down to 2000 if the chiropractor has bad record keeping. So we talk a lot about, okay, what should the records um, have in them? And it's like, you can't spend 30 minutes making records. We got to do things quick. I mean, we're, we're busy. We've got to process a certain number of people. So what, what are really, should we do? When I would hustle a PI attorney, pretty much what I would bring is my um, 
records to show a, a case, say this is the way we do it. Ever, you know, our how often we do re-evals, what our re-eval reports look like. And then we talk to them about um, the narrative report at the end of the, the case, you know, what um, what would we try to put in there so that the, the attorney has, um, you know, pretty good information. The last one I did, by the way, um, pretty recent, um, the they came back with $180,000. This chiropractic PI, it's not, don't need surgery, don't need 100,000. 100, these are good numbers. But it's it's good numbers because we sort of know what we're doing, and that's a little bit of what I get to um, to share with with the audience that's listening before Sean shows up. And if it's if it's okay with you, I thought I would just start with two questions, and then at the end we'll answer the two questions. Is that all right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I was gonna, I was going to have you start sort of thirty thousand feet and get into the weeds, and and it sounds like that's a little bit of exactly what you're going to do. So so what what are your two Sounds like you're going to be the questioning questioner and the questionee today. Well, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question to the audience, and then at the end, I'll I'll answer the questions, and they're they're good. And and the audience may know who Marilyn Voss Savant is. Her fame is that it is claimed that she has the highest IQ on planet Earth at this moment. You know, pretty close between her and Sean Steele, but she's getting the edge at least right now. And Marilyn Savant has has a um, a newspaper column, and I read the column. I always look forward to it because people ask her questions. Recently, two questions involved personal injury. Here they are. So the first one is: someone writes in to Marilyn Voss Savant, how many Americans have died from car accidents since the invention of the automobile? And how does this compare to the number who have died in wars? So PI death versus war death. And her response, very interesting. The other one is kind of what I would do in um, a PI um, post-grad class or even my undergrad class. Here it is, it it came out last year. Uh, This question was posed to Marilyn Voss Savant says, Say you're sitting at a red light. In your rearview mirror, you see the car behind you can't stop in time. Knowing you're going to be rear-ended, what should you do? Some people say you should brace yourself. Others say you should relax as much as possible. Which is better? Okay, then she answers that. Great. So pretty, pr- pretty, pretty important stuff. And just, just as we just say hi for a moment, did anyone read today's paper? Now I'm in, I try to read five newspapers a day. I read the Sacramento Bee, of the five papers I read today, only one had this article. It came in, a, the SAC Bee is referencing the Associated Press and it just flat out says, pandemic, this is the title of the article, pandemic set off deadly rise in speeding that hasn't stopped. What the article details from the National Transportation Safety Board is that fatalities in, from PI cases in 2020 went up 7.2% compared to the prior year. They blame it on the fact that with the COVID lockdowns, more people working at home rather than going to the job, the roads are more empty, allowing people that are on the roads to put the pedal to the metal and to bring up their speed. And that's exactly what I, I we've borne that out in, in our, I mean, 
we had more cases. We were talking about this just recently. More cases in that lockdown time in 2020, like March to May period, where everybody was truly locked down. The cases we got during that time, we had more over 100 mile an hour collisions, excess of 100 mile an hour collisions than we'd ever had in the history of the law firm in that three month span. In, in, that, in that regard, that's somewhat mentioned here. It says in California, where you and I both are, it says in California, the number of people going over 100 miles per hour doubled in that same time frame. It doubled. So you're just thinking, and, and they, they, they blame the fact that there's not enough cars on the road to slow people down. Right. And the other thing is, they say as a consequence of what's happening in law enforcement, there are not enough officers to do enforcement. The result is chances of being caught are very, very low. Nobody's on the road to, to slow down the, the, the flow. So people are just going like crazy. The result is more deaths and in fact, more injuries. So I thought all of that was pretty interesting. And that's today's paper. It just came out today. If you dial that back to USA Today, this is the SAC B, USA Today on my birthday, January 29th of 2021, there's a similar study saying, man, it's just going crazy out there because of excessive speed. Yeah. So the number of people going over 100 and getting their wrecks is just unbelievable. Yeah. And it flat out says, this is a quote for an article, says a crash that is easily survivable at 40 miles per hour is often fatal at 50 miles per hour or more. Wow. So that you're taking more types of events that would have been injurious and actually pushing them into your death. And I'm thinking, God, that's 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 an interesting comment. And then the, the, the other kind of related comment is um, USA Today in February of this year, 2021, also published a study, a little bit sexist, um, about vehicle size. And it flat out says, the smaller the car, the greater the risk of the occupants of the car from being both injured and killed. They say size actually matters in injury and you want to have a bigger, biggest car as possible. The sexism is that if I look at the, the, the headline it says, smaller cars means more injuries for women. And what they, the, the way they do it is say just statistically is that more women drive smaller cars than men. So the result is it's another reason that women have a greater exposure and they've known forever. They've known at least since the Ralt study that came out of archives of physical medicine, rehabilitation, all back in 1998, that women have a smaller cross-sectional diameter. If you put them in the same accident as a man, smaller cross-sectional diameters of soft tissues increases the risk of injury. Women tend to get double the injury um, rate and injury extent as compared to men in the exact same 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 um, motor vehicle event. So just women, you know, just some things to talk about. But all of that is probably secondary to I thought this would be, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, what has really made a difference in my understanding of, of PI? And again, the, the way my, my life has gone, I've done about 15,000 PI cases. Um, I've, I've done uh, hundreds, literally, of depositions on PI, and I've done th uh, 33 trials. I think maybe now 34. I, I just recently did another 30, 34 trials. And some, we got our butts kicked. Some, we did a, a lot better. We kind of learned, you know, what, you know, a bad way and a good way. I mean, one of the things I real, figured out real quick is that my education, I got out of chiropractic college thinking that 
what chiropractors were doing was, was unpinching pinched nerves. And that, that, that's for most often stupid talk. And it's very easy to show that that's stupid talk. And if you're doing that, it kind of, you know, puts a target on you as being, being, um, being, being an idiot. So what are we doing? And so I, I think my, my real claim to fame started in um, the summer of 1997, where I did a case and I explained um, how chiropractic adjustments activate the supersegmental descending pain inhibitory control pathway. And so that really went over well. I mean, we've done it pretty much on all the cases that I've done um, um, since 1997. It's what I started doing with my 12 quarter junior class at the college, uh, left chiropractic college West Monday of this week, I'll finish it Monday um, coming up and it's remote. So I have, I'm doing all of this stuff remote, but part of what I would just make sure everyone understands that if you read the whiplash literature, there is absolute best journals claiming that the number one predictor of injury and chronicity from injury is state of preparedness at the moment of the collision. And they've known for decades and decades that vehicular damage is irrelevant, but what is relevant is state of awareness. So that people a lot of times say, how bad was the car beat up? But if instead we ask, okay, were you caught by surprise or not? Because that is a huge deal. Just as a, as a, as a metaphor, I, I speak to my wrist. I go, wrist, get ready. You're going to get a whiplash. And so the wrist knows it. It's told it. So you can jerk it around. And am I entering my wrist? No, because it's prepared to stake, to take a saying from my friend Malik Slosberg, joints fail when muscles don't protect them adequately. My muscles are protecting the joint. There's no injury. But if I disengage the muscles and I start bouncing off my ligaments, I'm going to have trouble working later today and tomorrow. The metaphor is... When people are caught by surprise, the muscles do not protect them. The forces goes to the joint. And that's when you get chronicity. Chronic um, whiplash pain is articular. If you look at that study by Nikolai Bogduck that came out in the journal Spine in December of 2011, uh, Bogduck, the, the number one clinical anatomist of all recorded human history, he is adamant chronic whiplash is facetal. And the facet joint capsules are injured when the muscles don't protect them. And therefore the awareness factor is a really big factor. So we talk, you know, it's in our paperwork. We, you know, we ask people, will you cop a surprise or not? I look at some of the, like the, the one case I did a case at, at the college. I literally did it at the college, a PI case where this young guy was looking maximum left when he's rear-ended and he gets an injury. But we just say, how bad was the, the car damage? Not bad, a couple hundred dollar dent in the bumper. But yet we justified a $1,400 chiropractic bill because he was maximum rotated, which is a problem, and then hit from behind, caught by surprise. We know that when the head's rotated, the intervertebral foramen is smaller on the side of, of, of rotation, giving it a greater vulnerability, a smaller margin of safety. If you're caught by surprise, then that's when you get the injury. So we just talked it up. It went to trial and, went to, and we, we talked it up. We did a good job. Um, we did uh, templating of the x-rays. Um, the jury liked the templating of the, the pulling of the juror, uh, the jurors after. They said, yeah, that templating stuff, because it's a completely objective finding to show, show soft tissue injury. Worked, worked really, really well. But just the all just understanding about the, um, 
uh, being caught by surprise, I thought was a, a, a really big deal. And anecdotally, I'm sure we've all heard stories of, I mean, I know one in particular that, that stands out in my mind of the, the guy that was in a tornado and he got thrown like, I don't know, a thousand feet or a hundred yards, really far. And he was knocked unconscious before he landed and they credit his surviving this huge fall from him having been limp and, and relaxed at the time of the fall. And, and I've heard other anecdotal evidence of people claiming that because they were caught by surprise, because they were relaxed at the time of an impact, that they had a better outcome. So how, how do we explain, or is that just anecdotal, you know, statistics? Yeah. yeah, those are anecdotes. They're incorrect. Um, the studies that I use, the first study is the Sturzenegger study, sounds like Schwarzenegger, uh, the Sturzenegger study came out of the, the journal Neurology, filed under N, not under J. It came out in um, April of, of 1994. It's a 137-person study. They're looking at them in the short run. They're looking at them with a one-year follow-up. Who got the worst injury and who had the, the worst and the best outcome? Worst than all cases were being caught by surprise. That the people that were aware, they get sore, but they tend to recover completely. Those that were caught by surprise did not do very well at all. This was reiterated in quite a number of studies. The journal Trauma did it by a guy named Ryan um, later in that decade. In the, more, in the more recent era, you have the journals Pet and Spec in Neurology by a guy named uh, Garcia. Garcia did it again. He says the, the entire um, issue of awareness is the number one issue in terms of, of prognosis. The anecdotes that you hear other than your tornado anecdotes, because I don't know them too much, is that when, um, you know, the, when the, the, the drunk wipes out the family. But if you actually look at the statistics, they say that it is more likely that the family wipes out the drunk. But that's not headline news. Sure. So it tends not to be even published. But when drunk wipes out family, they make it, you know, that's the, the, yeah. the, the front page of the paper. And, but in reality... Uh, the drunk, he gets a greater injury. He's more at risk of, of, of poor recovery um, because he was, in fact, um, relaxed. All of this is reiterated in a brand new book, relatively new, 2017, uh, coming out of UC Berkeley by a guy named Matthew Walker. It's titled Why We Sleep. And he talks about when you, that, that falling asleep at the wheel is even worse than drunk, drunk driving because drunks tend to be slow in reaction. But they still react. They just slow. When you're sleeping, when you when you have what they call a mini sleep, there's no reaction at all. It's kind of like what Tiger Woods just did. The evidence is that he fell asleep at the wheel. He went right through the lane of traffic in the opposite direction. Luckily, didn't get hit on and goes down the cliff before there's any signs at all that he was breaking. And he got hurt really bad. He shattered his leg. He really he he messed up. But they say therefore that even worse than drunk driving is in fact. Falling asleep. If you pick up that book by Matthew Walker, great book, particularly if you're in the PI, great book. And um, uh, again, uh, same bottom line: being caught by surprise is not a good thing for the for the patient. So, Dr. Murphy, I want to I want to get into a little bit of giving the people who are listening here, and there's quite a few of them actually, some some solid take home advice. And I think that's a great piece of it. But you have a very unique uh, perspective as a chiropractor who's done that much trial work. So you've seen the litigation process really up close and personal in a way that many chiropractors, most chiropractors, I would argue, never do. 
give us some, give us some pointers, give us some tips, give us some, Hey, I see a chiropractor doing this, or I see a chiropractic records that they wrote that this is a really, this really plays well in trial, or I see chiropractors get reamed because they do this or that uh, in their reporting or in their treatment. Give us some solid, you know, useful, that sort of stuff. Well, for sure. My, and, and I know, again, it sounds kind of ego, but um, my experiences are extensive. It's no doubt. Right. Uh, I'm the real deal, the, the product of the school of hard knocks. I've had great successes and great failures. And you learn, you learn from those failures. Uh, last week, I drove through uh, Bakersfield, California. Uh, Michelle, um, my, my partner here, had to pick up an adjusting table in her garage down in Phoenix. So we went down and we, we drove back and went through Bakersfield. My first uh, major case was the Bakersfield case. I mean, it went for um, 1.13 million on a guy. It was, it's a very interesting case, but this is kind of the advice that I would I would tell people. The, the first thing is, is that uh, I have found invaluable, including the case I just did for $180,000, what they came back with, uh, you have to use measurement outcome. I measurement outcome to me is critical because it justifies the care that you're delivering. Plus it gives the chiropractor and the patient and the carrier and the lawyer, everyone involved an idea as to when the patient is reaching maximum improvement. When measurement outcomes aren't changing, that's when you should probably call the case and um, rate the residuals. Um, and essentially that's what, what I did in the case. The, the, the measurement outcomes that I like best just for its simplicity is the functional rating index. It was validated in the journal spine back in uh, 2001. And uh, it is an amalgamation of the Oswestry for low back and the neck disability index for neck. Instead of having people do 20 questions, they amalgamated them to a core 10 so that people only have to do 10 and it's easier for, their, for, for the provider to score. And we figured out, okay, this is, so measuring outcomes is a big deal. The next thing is, is that I think that you get yourself into trouble if you don't do regular reavows. Our system is set up that we do a reaval every 12 visits. So if it's three times a week, then we're doing them once a month. If it's twice a week, it's every six weeks. But if it's daily care, roughly every other week, we're doing a reaval. And then, so we go through our reavals, and then at the end of the reaval, we quickly cut a one-page report. The one-page report goes to all interested people. Um, it goes to the attorney. It goes to the primary care provider. It goes to whoever else is involved in the case, the dentist who's doing the TMJ, whatever, um, so that we kind of keep, keep track of exactly how well people are doing and, and what's being stubborn, et cetera. And then just so just you know, kind of kind of putting it all together like that. And then the I, if you go all the way back to the 50s, so we're talking you know more than a half a century ago, 70 years ago, you start realizing that the best studies historically in whiplash are claiming that an acutely injured whiplash patient needs daily care, and that anything less than daily care, you will ruin the outcome. Now carriers don't want to hear that. IME people don't want to hear that, but it's in the literature. So we, we put people on daily care, but all of a sudden that puts a crimp in the chiropractor. How do you do get daily care if you're the only one in the office? So what I tell the students at the college, chiropractic is very intense. To me, it's a very intense thing. So I tell them, and I believe my heart, chiropractor should only work three days a week. That means if you're doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, someone else should work Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And so you have two chiropractors in the office. We give them a Sunday off. 
But that way, anyone that needs daily care is in fact covered by, um, by the clinic. And even that's for acute care. And again, this is the billing study from the International, um, the International Journal of, uh, of, of Trauma coming out in 1953. You, there's, there's, the, there's the Salit study out of the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1958. These guys go over the value of daily care to optimize the outcome and to minimize the fibrosis of repair, which is what I got to talk about the wave last week to, to minimize that. And then if you look at the Kirkality Willis study, the William H. Kirkality Willis study coming out of Canadian Family Physician March of 1985, it's on chronics because we do get chronic whiplash. People that have screwed around thinking it would self-resolve and it didn't, time we get them, they're already chronic. They, he makes the same claim on chronic. He says, if you do not commit to adjusting the patient every day for the first two to three weeks, you will not get the best outcome. So we use these things and we justify you know, the care that we would give people and uh, we get really, really good outcomes. I would also tell everyone, if you get into the PI thing, the guy that invented the word whiplash, a guy named um, Harold Crow, uh, orthopedic surgeon, he did it actually in the year 1927, the birth year of my mother. Um, and he did it in San Francisco, California at an orthopedic conference of all things. Uh, if you follow Harold Crow, he wrote an article in the journal California Medicine in, in 1964, People should read that article because he says that he and his group who do, do whiplash figured out the primary cause of chronic whiplash. And he says, don't do this. And their chronic, the incidence of chronicity will drop like a rock. And so we figured that out decades ago. And the result is we have very few, you know, chronics. And then of just, of just, of course, um, understanding more of the law. Sean comes up and he's I'm blessed that he will come up and sp speak to my seniors. He would have done it this quarter, except for we're remote again, which is just crazy. And it's not on the college, it's on the government. Uh, Alameda County Health Department has made it so that our classes are remote. And so it's pretty rough. Our son had been up there, did it. But we, that there's certain legal concepts that providers, I think, have to know about, or they can actually um, harm the case. Even if you're a good chiropractor, you can harm the case because you don't, you don't know certain legal concepts. And so we, we go over things like um, the difference between apportionment and an active versus an inactive problem, you know, pre-event degenerative joint disease versus degenerative joint disease caused or accelerated by an accident. Just making sure that we're very, very clear and good thinking and all of that stuff. And then the ability to draw pictures to explain chiropractic what are you doing? Why is the patient seeing you? What are your clinical outcomes? And if I get a chance to do that, I always very politely say to the judges, is it, is it okay to draw? I've never had one say no. Yeah. And so I get up there and I'm right in front of the jury. I remember one time as I stand up here, I'm, I'm doing it. And the judge yelled at me as I was drawing these pictures. And I go, yes. He goes, can't see what you're doing. So he, he judged right away. I mean, I, my bottom was between him because I was, you know, going to the jury, but he was behind. Right. And I said, so I had to kind of shift around because he was really interested in it too. And that, that makes a huge difference when you draw pictures, particularly if you do it on a flip chart, because then you can mark it in as, a, as an exhibit. And then when the jurors are deliberating, which can be Take days later, they them. can, you can pull them back out. Yep. And you put on a chalkboard or a whiteboard, trust me, man, they erase those as quick as you can look an eye. I always, when I'm in trial with those, I always take pictures of them and then print the pictures and introduce them. Perfect. Same concept. Yeah. Yes. Three minutes left, believe it or not. Okay. We've had so much fun. We have three minutes left. And I want you to tell everybody the answers to the questions you posed okay. at the beginning. 
Okay, so um, yeah, and that's exactly what we should do. Uh, first question, how many Americans have died from car accidents since the invention of the automobile? How does this compare with the number who have died in wars? The answer, this is her word, so I'm quoting this quote. The comparison is stunning. Since the start of the revolution in 1775, about a million Americans have died in wars. Since Henry Ford introduced the mass-produced motor car in 1913, more than 2.5 million Americans have met their deaths on the road. So way two and a half times more on, on the road versus wars. And the war went all the way back to 1775. And the car, she started in 1913, hundreds of years later. I'm thinking, wow, cars are, cars are dangerous. And then the other one, this, this one I thought was pretty important because this is a lot of what I do when I, when I do PI class. You're sitting at a red light in your rear view mirror. You see the car behind you can't stop in time. Knowing that you're going to be rear-ended, what should you do? Some people say you should brace yourself. Others say you should relax as much as possible. Kind of the, the tornado metaphor that you brought up, which is better, her answer. You should brace yourself. Using, use your muscles to protect the vertebra, the disc, and the nerves in your spine and neck as much as you can. Lean your head against the headrest and face directly forward. In other words, no rotation. Then push your foot against the brake pedal and your back against the seat, if possible, and hold onto the steering wheel. So she wants you to tighten your muscles to protect the joints. She wants there to be no gap uh, at all between you and the, and the back of the seat and the head restraint. She wants you to look straight forward, no rotation at all. And interestingly, she wants you to put your foot on the brake because the acceleration, inertial acceleration difference between the head and the trunk entering the neck are linked to the acceleration achieved by the struck vehicle. If the foot's on the brake, the vehicle doesn't accelerate as much. This, by the way, is flawlessly done. Absolutely the best I've ever seen it in the spine by Rothman and Simone. Volume two, chapter 10, page 648. They go over the best explanation why you should put your foot on the brake because it reduces the forward acceleration of the vehicle proportionally reducing the inertial acceleration differences between the different parts of a person's body that otherwise would be injured. That she is, said it flawlessly. That is, um, that is counterintuitive. You would think you'd want that I know. to absorb some of the impact. That's that's That might be the biggest take home of the day. It is 1.30. I okay. want to get these docs out of here so they can get back to their their normal uh, normally scheduled content. But doctor, I, I honestly, I think I should call you professor. Professor Murphy, after that lecture. No, no, no. You know, I, Dan Murphy, I'm a chiropractor. Let's face You it. were quoting line and verse out of the spine written by guy in the year. I, that was incredible. Oh, I, that well, alone. Yeah. We, just because you don't listen to me, those that are on this audience that listen to me know it's, I have a unique skill set. You should see I, what I can do. I believe, I believe, <laughs> I truly believe it. I feel badly for your wife. Uh, so uh, Dr. Murphy, Professor Murphy, Dan Murphy, thank you so much for being with us uh, on the podcast, on the live stream today. We, uh, I know that everybody appreciates it very much. How, if they want to, can people get in touch with you if they uh, so choose? Well, they would, they would get a hold of Michelle. Um, Michelle is uh, Michelle at danmurphydc.com. Great. 
Great. If anybody has questions for, for uh, Dr. Murphy, they can reach out to Michelle that way and get a hold of you. Uh, as everybody knows, they can get a hold of me and Sean through our website, seansteel.com. Sean's email is the, the easiest in the world, seansteel at seansteel.com. Mine slightly more complicated, Alexander Eisner at seansteel.com. Uh, our podcast will be up on uh, iTunes, uh, Google, everywhere you get podcasts. Uh, and this uh, the video will be up on YouTube within a couple of days. Again, Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.